Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. On this episode, we are continuing on with the Based on a True Story series, where I am covering a movie that is based on a true crime story, and we'll go over the movie as well as what really happened. Also, stay tuned at the end of each episode, as I will be giving away some more bonus movie names. These are names of true crime movies that I'm not going to cover in this series, but you can go and look up and watch on one of the streaming platforms. The movie for this episode is Stalking Laura, and it is really well done. It's one of those movies that have stuck with me, and it really makes you think. Not only does it cover a four-year stalking event, there's also a mass shooting that takes place in a workplace. It's, it's something. This episode is presented by Away Travel. Quite simply, Away makes everything you need for a trip away. Away started with the perfect suitcase, then built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from the travel stories of friends and seatmates. The pieces aren't smart, they're thoughtful, with features that solve real travel problems. To give the whole world access to better travel standards, Away took the direct-to-consumer approach to lower prices, and the quality is guaranteed. Your Away suitcase will be with you for life. We are teaming up with Away and Podgo to give you the best deal on premium luggage by going to podgo.co away. That's podgo.co slash away. Away Travel, here to make your journey seamless. Stalking Laura, which is also known as I Can Make You Love Me, but I found it under Stalking Laura on Amazon Prime. It stars Brooke Shields and Richard Thomas. Uh, Richard Thomas played John Boy in an old TV series called The Waltons, and he does a great job in being progressively creepy in this. Again, I found it on Amazon Prime. It's from 1993, Stalking Laura, and you might be able to find it on YouTube or another streaming service. Fresh out of university in 1984, Laura Black gets a job working as an electrical engineer for a high-tech company in Sunnyvale, California. She moves away from her family and drives cross-country to her new career and new life. In the movie, the company is called Kensitrin Electronics International. In real life, it is ESL Incorporated. In both, the company has its own huge office building and large parking lot to accommodate all of its employees. During her orientation, Laura is informed about the security clearance and how it works, and that as she goes, she will likely get a higher security clearance. Laura is introduced to Richard Farley. Richard has been there nine years and has one of the highest clearance levels. Later that day, Richard asks Laura to go to a festival event with him, but she tells him that she cannot. He is not deterred and says that they can go out another time. Richard gives her a gift of homemade blueberry bread. Later, after work, Richard pops up in the parking lot and asks her to a concert. Laura tells him she is sorry she is busy. He then asks her to dinner on Saturday night instead. She tells him that she thinks it is just not a good idea. Farley kept at it, though, even showing up at her aerobics class. In the movie, Laura joins the company softball team. It's not clear whether or not she did that or if there even was a company team, But during the game, Richard tried to talk to her about their relationship. He did do this. He did try to talk to her about what he referred to as their relationship in real life. And she told him the only relationship they had was a professional one in the office. 
He seemed to really believe they had a personal relationship outside of the office, no matter what Laura told him or said. At work, Richard obtains Laura's home address and writes her letters regularly and mails them to her. Laura is bothered by his behavior, but she doesn't want to complain about him at work, at least not yet. She wants to handle it on her own. Later, in an interview, Laura said that at this time, she tried really hard to ignore him, but to still be cordial. She stopped saying no to his asking her out and instead tried to do nothing and try to say nothing at all. Richard tried to use this as proof that she didn't say no to a date when he asked her out, and he would then show up at her place, ready to go. When she told him to leave, he argued that she was playing games with him. If she hadn't wanted to go out with him that night, then she should have said no. Farley did an old-fashioned cut-and-paste doctoring of pictures to make it look like they were together in photos and mailed them to her. He also somehow copied the keys to her desk and went through it when she was not there. Laura moved four times during the four years that Farley was stalking her, but every time he was able to obtain her address and would continue to mail the letters and doctored photos there. Sometimes he took the letters to her home himself. Laura came home one day to find a letter wedged in her door, Hand-lettered across the front was a warning. You'd better read this. Some co-workers tried to talk to Richard, but he denied that he was doing anything wrong, insisting that he and Laura had a relationship. Completely exasperated, in October of 1985, Laura went to Human Resources. ESL asked Richard to go to counseling sessions, and he agreed. He also agreed not to send her letters or gifts. He did go to the counseling sessions and stopped the communications, but a couple months later, he started up again. In December of 1985 and January 1986, they issued written warnings to Farley. In January of 86, Farley wrote Laura a letter saying he would not kill her, but he had a whole range of options, each one getting worse and worse. He had already warned her previously that he did own guns and he was good with them and had told her not to push him. In May of 1986, Richard Farley was terminated from ESL. Officially, they listed it as due to poor performance. He had been working there for nine years. Some months later, he found employment at a similar company in Sunnyvale. Even though he got another job, he continued to stalk and harass Laura. In July of 1987, he warned her not to get a restraining order. He wrote, It might not really occur to you how far I'm willing to go to upset you if I decide that's what I'm forced to do. There were other letters which indicated he might be willing to use violence. Laura was sufficiently scared enough to seek a lawyer. When a male friend of Laura's tried to talk to Farley, Farley wrote, It's not in your best interest for him to interfere. Farley warned in the typewritten letter of January 23, 1988. He doesn't have any idea what he's getting into. You'd better tell him. I'd better never see any police around me. On February 2, 1988, Black filed a restraining order on Farley. She hadn't done it before because of things he had said that scared her as to what he would do if she did do that. But it had been going on for four years, and she had seen that he was escalating in behavior and thought this might be the only answer she had available to her. In her court plea, she said, I have been afraid of what this man might do to me if I filed this action. However, I am now at the end of my rope. I need the court's assistance and the assistance of the appropriate police agencies to keep this man out of my life. A court date was set for February 17, 1988 to see if the restraining order should be made permanent. 
For some reason, much as Laura had originally feared, Richard Farley found the notice of the restraining order to be the tipping point for him. He bought a shotgun, other weapons, and equipment. At that time, the restraining order did not prevent him from buying weapons. On February 9, 1988, he left a package with Laura Black's attorney. He told the lawyer that he had evidence that he and Black had a long-standing relationship. Inside were doctored photos that were supposed to show Richard and Laura on dates, a garage door opener that belonged to Laura Black's house, and hotel and credit card receipts. February 16th, the day before the court date, Richard drove his motor home to ESL parking lot. At 3 p.m., he loaded up his guns, a 12-gauge semi-automatic shotgun, a rifle with a scope, a Mossberg 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, a 22 revolver, a 357 Magnum revolver, a Browning BDA 380 ACP pistol, and a Smith & Wesson 9mm pistol. He also had a foot-long buck knife and a smoke bomb. He wore a bulletproof vest, earplugs, and a leather glove. He had over 1,000 rounds of ammunition with him. Walking through the ESL parking lot toward the building, he shot and killed one employee. He then entered the building by blasting through the security glass and kept on shooting, firing at equipment and any workers he came across. He continued to shoot up computers and any employees he encountered as he made his way to Laura Black's office, which was on the second floor. One man had died in the parking lot as he left the building. Another died behind his desk after Farley had blasted through the glass door. A third man was killed in the stairwell, and two men and two women in a second-floor hallway. When Richard had reached her office, Laura slammed the door in Richard's face. He shot through the door, hitting her left shoulder and collapsing her lung. She went unconscious. For some reason, Richard moved on down the hall. A SWAT team arrived, and Farley moved from room to room so as not to be a target. Laura regained consciousness and was able to keep her wound from bleeding more. She, as well as others, hid from Farley during this time. When the SWAT team arrived, Farley managed to avoid their snipers by staying on the move inside the building. A hostage negotiator was able to make contact with Farley, and the two talked on and off during the five-hour siege. Farley told the negotiator that he had gone to ESL to shoot up the equipment and that there were specific people he had in mind. This later contradicted Farley's lawyer, who used the defense that Farley had gone there to kill himself in front of Laura Black, not to shoot at people. During the five-hour conversation, he told the negotiator, I'm not crazy. I know I will die as a result of this. Police said he expressed disappointment not only at his failure to win Black's affection, but at mounting debts and the loss of his house and home computer, which he blamed on his firing. Farley surrendered to police after five hours. Seven people were killed and four were wounded. Ninety-eight rounds were fired. Richard Farley surrendered to police after officers promised to give him a sandwich and a soda. In the end, Farley agreed to leave his weapons and gave himself up in exchange for a number 26 sandwich from Togo's and a Diet Pepsi. Laura Black survived but was hospitalized for 19 days. She went back to work for the same company. Farley wrote to Laura from prison telling her that she won. During trial, Farley admitted to the killings but pled not guilty claiming that he never planned to kill but only wished to get Black's attention or commit suicide in front of her for rejecting him. His attorney claimed that Farley was never a violent man and only had his judgment temporarily clouded by his obsession with Black and that he would likely never kill again. 
Prior to the shooting, Farley did not have a criminal record. From jail in March 1988, Farley wrote to Black, When I go to the gas chamber, I'll smile for the cameras, and you'll know that you'll have won in the end. A March 1989 letter from Farley to a friend said, I'm glad Laura is okay. I hope she understands if I'd really wanted to hurt her, she wouldn't be here today. Sunnyvale Police Captain Al Scott said Black had shut and locked her second-floor office when Farley found her and shot at her through the door. Also injured were Richard Townsley, wounded in the chest, arms, and legs when he tried to help others get out of the building, Gregory Scott, wounded in the chest, and Patty Marcotti, who broke her right arm as she escaped. Police identified the five men and two women killed during the rampage as Helen Limperter, 49, Glenda Moritz, 27, Joe Silva, 43, Wayne Williams, 23, Ron Reed, 26, Lawrence Kane, 46, and Ron Donnie, 36. ESL spokeswoman Eddie Cartwright said at the time, company security guards are not armed. Farley appeared so suddenly with so much weaponry that the company's locks and other security procedures were useless, she said. Richard Farley was born on July 25, 1948, in Texas. He was the oldest of six children. His father was in the military, and the family moved frequently, settling in California. According to his mother, Farley was raised in a loving home. He was a quiet, well-behaved boy. In high school, he showed an interest in math and chemistry and took his studies seriously. He did not smoke, drink, or use drugs. He played table tennis and chess and did some photography and baking. He graduated 61st out of 520 high school students in 1966. He went on to attend Santa Rosa Junior College for one year and then joined the United States Navy in 1967, where he stayed for 10 years. After finishing basic training, he was trained to be a cryptologic technician. The information that he was exposed to was highly classified. He qualified for top-secret security clearance. After his discharge in 1977, he began working as a software technician at ESL Incorporated. ESL was involved in the development of strategic signal processing systems and was a major supplier of tactical reconnaissance systems to the U.S. military. Much of the work that Farley was involved in at ESL was described as being vital to the national defense and highly sensitive. Up until 1984, Farley received four ESL performance evaluations for his work. His scores were high, 99%, 96%, 96.5%, and 98%. Farley was friends with a few of his co-workers, but some found him to be arrogant, egotistical, and boring. He liked to brag about his gun collection and his good marksmanship. But others who worked closely with Farley found him to be conscientious about his work and generally a nice guy. Other than his intense obsession with Laura Black, there is nothing that was noted in his background as a red flag of any kind. On October 21, 1991, Farley was found guilty of all seven counts of first-degree murder. On January 17, 1992, Superior Court Judge Joseph Biafor, Jr. sentenced Farley to death. Because of California law, there were several automatic appeals. On July 2, 2009, the California Supreme Court upheld Farley's death sentence. As of 2020, Farley was still on death row in San Quentin Prison. In the wake of this case and the high-profile murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer, California passed the first anti-stalking laws in the nation. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to the episode just before this one, based on a true story. 
The movie was And Never Let Her Go was covered in that, as well as the names of some bonus movies that you can watch. The bonus movies for this episode are, the first one is A Murderous Affair, The Carolyn Warmus Story. It's a 1992 movie starring Virginia Madsen and Chris Sarandon. I'll put the names of the bonus movies in the show notes for you so you can find them. The IMDb description of this movie says, When Paul Solomon returns home to find his wife has been murdered, he becomes the primary suspect. He reveals to the detectives of his affair with the sexy and charming Carolyn Warmus as his alibi. Soon detectives begin to find the seemingly sweet Carolyn was anything but, and had a jealous streak that would lead her to do anything to get Paul to herself. And again, that's A Murderous Affair, the Carolyn Warmus Story, 1992 movie. The second one is a 2017 movie called Murder on the Cape. It is the Krista Worthington case. And I believe that's the whole title too. Murder on the Cape, Krista Worthington case. An out-of-work fisherman has an affair with a fashion writer wintering on the Cape. She returns two years later with his child. And when she is murdered, the fisherman is the prime suspect. I found both of those movies available to stream for free on Tubi. That's T-U-B-I TV. Um, it's a free streaming service that you can find online and a smart, tele- uh, smart televisions as well. The sources for today's episode, Richard Farley, he stalked her relentlessly, then he opened fire, wickedwe.com. Profile of Richard Wade Farley Mass Murderer, Thoughtco.com, Wikipedia, Richard Farley Criminal Minds Wiki Fandom, Profile of Richard Wade Farley Mass Murderer, Thoughtco.com, written by Charles Montaldo, Death Penalty Appeal Denied in Tech Company Killings, NBC Bay Area, Sudden Death in Sunnyvale, The Washington Post, LATimes.com archives LA-XPM 1988-02-18-MN 43514-StoryHTML Unwanted Suitors' Fixation on Woman Led to Carnage, LosAngelesTimes.com